Take your Bibles and find the book of Jonah, would you? Chapter 3. We are at a place where Jonah is now on his second chance. He's uh, operating now under the echo of grace, as we said last week. Can I catch you up to speed real quickly? We've been in Jonah now for two months, January and February. In those two months, we've seen Jonah hear the word of the Lord. And instead of going east to Nineveh, about 500 miles, he goes about 2,000 miles west to a place or to a, a hopeful place called Tarshish. He never makes it, though, because in his running from the Lord, God prepares a storm. And when Jonah wouldn't hear the word of the Lord, he sure listened to the work of the Lord, didn't he? And somewhere on that boat in the Mediterranean, he agreed to let those sailors throw him overboard. And I'm sure Jonah thought, well, this is the way my life as a prophet ends. I ran and now I'm going to be dead. But somehow God provided a great fish in that Mediterranean to actually uh, swim and swallow him. And for three days and three nights, Jonah says, he was in the belly of this great fish. That was a symbol of salvation. And that became his sanctuary. And during those three days, he confessed and repented and Three days later, he finds himself vomited up on dry land where he hears the word of the Lord a second time and finally for the first time obeys. Amen. And that's where we pick up the story. Jonah's now on his first trek toward Nineveh. He's obeying the Lord. And it says in Jonah 3, verse 3, are you there with me? He went to Nineveh. Isn't that great news? I don't know if God actually said this, but I wonder in my mind if God's not like, well, Finally, I get you where I need you to go, Jonah. God said that about me, I'm sure, several times. And probably about you too, hasn't he? Let's pick up middle of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. In other words, it's a very great city. It echoes the, the same verses in chapter 1. Nineveh was a, a large and a great city. And a visit required three days. I think he's meaning here that a visit required you to be in the city about three days. Now, we're not sure if that means that it took him three days to deliver his message to different parts of the metroplex of Nineveh. Uh, historians believe it was probably at least about 60,000 within the walled cities of Nineveh. It could have been over 100,000 if you consider the outlying areas that were outside of the walls. Regardless, it was a large area to preach to and it required it. Several days. So this may refer to the amount of time he needed to, to evangelize. It may require, however, to some uh, political protocol that was involved at Nineveh. Perhaps uh, as he went into the city, there was a day in which he was required to kind of register and, and make his presence. known. remember, Jonah was a Jewish prophet and he was going to the capital city of his arch enemy. I don't think he made an entrance without being known. I don't think he was probably looking to. Uh, appear to be a subversive spy. I suspect he went in, I believe, somewhat fearful, but he probably went in very known. I tend to wonder also if maybe the three-day visit might be somewhat um, connected to his three-day stay in the fish. I wonder if maybe, we have no biblical record of this, but I wonder if maybe there wasn't some hint in God's mind, like, well, Jonah, three days in the, in the fish, and how about three days in Nineveh? You know, I don't know. But regardless, it was... A three-day stay in Nineveh. And he was to preach a message of coming judgment. Look what it says in verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. 
He proclaimed, and here's a five-word message in the Hebrew language, eight in the NIV translation. Here's the, trans, here's, the, here's the message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. You talk about a short sermon. You guys would love that, wouldn't you? Probably not near as funny or as near as nice as I've been to you guys. He just gave five Hebrew words and they all centered on judgment. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, the word 40 is pretty symbolic in Scripture. Remember, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and that was one of God's ways to, to show judgment. Throughout Scripture, the number 40 seems to be symbolic, not every time, but generally speaking, of some type of testing, or maybe of a period of time in which if, if you don't act, judgment's on the way. It, it's several times it's mentioned that way. Uh, we know that Goliath tested the Israelites for 40 days. He taunted them. We know that there were uh, several times in Scripture that 40 is used in that way. And here, Jonah said, 40 more days and none of it will be overturned. Now, interestingly enough, I do think he's referencing the judgment of God coming. But I want to share something just interesting with you about the word overturned. It's used uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah as well, meaning that judgment was impending. But three times in the Old Testament, this same word is used. To talk about how there was a turn of events or a transformation in someone's appearance. And though I don't think the word textually means that Nineveh was turned around. This word is used three times to talk about a turnaround in a situation. Not negative. Just a turnaround. And I guess you could say 40 days and Nineveh will be turned around. That did happen, didn't it? Nineveh was turned around. I think he meant judgment. But the truth is God turned that city around, didn't he? I mean, they, they experienced a massive U-turn. That was the gist of Jonah's message. Now, do I think Jonah shared more than these five Hebrew words? I do. Do I have biblical proof, textual record to show that? No, I don't. But I think there are some indicators that say Jonah probably shared more than just these, these small, uh, this small message. First of all, one indicator is the next phrase in our passage. Look with me. He preached this message 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And verse 5 says the Ninevites believed God. Now, from those words that Jonah preached, you wouldn't have a whole lot to go on about believing God. In fact, the word believe means to trust. It's a stronger, intensive form of this word believe. It means to actually trust in someone to deliver you. And notice the word God there. It's not necessarily Yahweh. It's the more personal form of God. I think Jonah declared more than just the judgment. I think he relayed his information about his relationship to God. I think he talked about how to trust in God. He did a lot more with the Ninevites than he did with the sailors. The sailors just said, hey, I'll serve the God of you know, the, the Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, and don't ask any more questions. But I think to the Ninevites, my personal opinion is, while this was the nut graph of what he said, I believe he shared more about who this, this God was and how he would forgive them if within this 40 days they would repent. In fact, another indicator that he shared more might be how they responded. I'm not sure that, that fasting and praying and, and forsaking their sin was a, a known thing. I think Jonah probably shared that. He said, listen, if you're serious about avoiding what's coming in 40 days, here's some things you ought to do. So in my opinion, here's the essence of his message, but there was probably more to it. 
Well, the Ninevites did trust in God. And in fact, verse 5 says they declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. You see, you know you're serious when you can take off the clothes that feel good and you put on some kind of sack that's all scratchy. And that's what sackcloth is. It, it's really, I don't know that how to describe it any better than like, a, like some scratchy potato sack kind of material. Can you imagine putting that on? And they probably wore it in a tight uh, fashion. I don't think it draped them. I think it clung to them. Because they wanted to experience and feel what it was like to repent. To, to say, hey God, I am sorry. You're right and I'm wrong. And so they took off their clothes. They put on this sackcloth. And then they avoid eating. They avoided uh, fulfilling their personal appetites. They actually put their mental change into uh, on physical exhibition. They said, you know what? We now trust and believe God, not our pagan gods, not our wicked practices. We believe God, and we're going to show that by how we act. And that's repentance, isn't it? Let's keep reading. Verse 6, I think, is a more explicit explanation of the word greatest mentioned in verse 5. Remember, Jonah here says that from the greatest to the least, they listened. Well, who's greater than the king, right? Here's how the king listened. It says that when the news reached the king of Nineveh, and news there could be Jonah's message, or it could be the news that, hey, king, your whole country is repenting. And if you're the king, you probably don't want to be left out, do you? You're like, well, why are they repenting? What's going on? Here's the message. Either way, when the king got word that there's a revival in the land, he also repents. He takes a, he comes off his throne. He takes off his royal robes, covers himself with sackcloth. He joins the average guy. Isn't that awesome? And by the way, that's an awesome trait of leadership. When leadership can join the average guy in their response, it, it, it's like, you know what? Humility is something we all should, should don. It's a, the cross is level, and no matter what your name or title or position, when it comes to the cross, we all take a knee. Amen? And so the king said, listen, I'm off my throne. I'm putting on sackcloth just like the least person in Nineveh. And then he issued a proclamation. The word there is the word cry. Here's what he issued. He said, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Now, can you imagine putting scratchy material, burlap, shall we call it, some kind of potato sack on your pet? And we got a little dog named Riley. Now, and if our family in, in, in great moans of revival were to follow this practice literally and put on sackcloth, you know, we're around the house with our potato sacks on and we're duct taping it around so we can feel the, the discomfort and know that, that, God, we're trying to show you we're repentant. We're walking around, you know, with potato sacks. We see Riley. Riley, you don't get, you don't get a pass. Come here. And we take some potato sack and strap Riley in it. Can you imagine? I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but it's showing their sincerity, isn't it? They're saying, God, if we've only got 40 days, please know that we are so serious about believing you and turning that we'll even make our animals wear sackcloth. So they fasted with sackcloth. They made their animals fast with sackcloth. And then notice some other actions the king called for. Let everyone call urgently on God. The word there is desperately. 
I mean, this was not a mealtime prayer. This is not, Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. This is not a 911 kind of emergency call that takes like 10 seconds. He says, guys, we've got a call desperately on God. We've only got 40 days. He said, then let us give up our evil ways and turn from our violence. Nineveh was known to impale victims. They were Israel's arch enemy. They were violent. They were um, involved in human sacrifices, even of little babies. Nineveh was a very pagan city. And the king here is saying, listen, we trust God and we're going to show that by, by our posture and by our appearance. And we're going to show that by our actions. And we're going to stop our pagan practices. Turn from our evil ways. We're going to stop our violence. And then the, the awesome question in verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And that's a, an awesome verse. You know why? Because not perishing is what God promises to all who turn to him. What is John 3.16? If you'll believe in the name of Jesus Christ, then you'll have eternal life and you won't what? Perish. It's an awesome word. The king knew. Listen, guys, turning to God is the only way to avoid what's coming in 40 days. There's an interesting play on words in these verses, especially regarding the word turn. Nineveh as a city experienced a turning. If they didn't turn to God, they would have been overturned. And the king says that in response to their turning to God, he was hoping that God would turn. Interesting play on the word turn throughout these verses, isn't it? And that's why I like this passage, because it gives us a real understanding of what repentance is. Repentance is really turning. And in this passage, we see an, an incredible portrait of what real repentance is. And the closer look at these verses shows us something. And I want you to write this down and really kind of hold on to this nugget all week. That repentance, as shown in the story of the Ninevites, and this is a consistent principle throughout Scripture... I'll lay some more out for you in a little bit, but let me just kind of give you the, the shortened version first. Repentance is a mental change fact that results in visible change acts. You cannot separate the two. Repentance is not going down the road and saying, oh, you're right. I now see that I'm thinking wrongly, but I'll keep acting this way and driving straight down this road to destruction. That's not repentance. Repentance means as we're driving the wrong way and we realize mentally, okay, I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn around. Then our actions are. And we go the other way. Repentance is a U-turn of the head and the heart. In fact, the, the Greek word for repentance is metanoa. It. Part of the word is the word mind, Noah, in Greek. And it, it means that you realize, okay, I'm wrong. God is right. And then that knowledge is turned into action and we do something because we realize we're wrong and God is right. That's repentance. It's a U-turn. Now, to help bring some, some color to this, I want to encourage you to do at least one thing. We've taken one of my messages from the book of Luke. We gave several, a couple, three years ago, I believe, and we were in Luke. 
and it was about repentance. It's from Luke 3, and we put it on our website. Near this week's message will be posted this afternoon. I want to encourage you, maybe uh, at your office, if you have some headphones or have the capacity to listen, maybe while you do your work, or, or download it and put it on a CD for your car. But there's some additional insight from the book of Luke that I provided about repentance. And I want to encourage you to, to either listen or download that message and, and, and really let God teach you so, some more insight about this word. Because here's why, guys. Repentance is not a popular word. Our country is not a real fan of that word. And I don't think the American church likes it very much either. We'd much rather say, oh, well, I'm right and you're right and we're all right. And let's just all go whatever way we want to go. And that's just nothing but a big mess. All you know, there was a bunch of cars crashing at the end. Now, the truth is, God is right. And as he shows us where we're wrong, then when we adjust and change to God, that is repentance. And that's required for all of us. Here's proof. It was required of Jonah, wasn't it, first? Jonah had to repent and say, God, I'm wrong. You're right. And get back to hearing the word of the Lord and obeying the first time. The Ninevites needed to repent. So repentance is, is seeing where I'm wrong and God is right and then making that change. And it's shown so clearly in these few verses where the Ninevites repented, they believed God, and it showed in their actions. And we'll talk more about verse 10 next week. But I love the fact that from the least to the greatest, they adjusted, they they, they, they stopped and turned and mentally and physically showed the Lord, I repent. Now, before I make a couple of observations to wrap things up, I want to ask this week if there may be some questions. And, you know, in the summer we did a Q zone, and sometimes every few weeks we'll offer the same opportunity. There may be someone here who has a question maybe about some verses here. These are some difficult verses at times in regards to culture and, and certain practices. Or maybe you have a question about the word repentance because... I suspect it's not a word you've heard a lot, probably. Um, but are there any questions, perhaps, in this service you may want to ask about the text or about this topic that maybe I can help you with? Here's a time for our cues on any questions at all. Not that you have to, but if you do, it's a good time to ask. Anyone at all? Marty's got a mic, and he'll be sure to run it to you. You can ask. We can all hear. Anyone? You're more than welcome to ask. Scott's got a question. And Keith, this is something we do periodically, so don't worry. I love Q&A time, so... Todd, um, change is difficult. Um, and repentance you're talking about is change. For example, anyone who's tried to lose weight, my salespeople trying to get them to change their behavior, change is hard. The, <clears throat> here you're talking about an act on our part of repentance. But what about the role of the Holy Spirit? What are the things that we do to facilitate change, and what is it that the Holy Spirit does that's supernatural? That's a good question. I um, let me let me address a couple of things. I'm not a genius on this, Scott. Maybe some others have some better answers, and I like to hear maybe your insight. I do think change has a starting point. So let's take the losing weight example, or the sales thing, or even a habit you have. I think that often, uh, uh, and I'll just say, share my own story. I know there was a time in 2000 I weighed 203 pounds, and I was growing 
larger than this structure was meant to hold. And I knew, I said, I've got to do something or when I'm 45, I'm going to be 233. And I just can't hold that much weight on this frame. I'm not a big guy. And I had to, I had to, to make a point, which I said, okay, here's where I stop. Now, I can't be where I need to be tomorrow, but I can at least turn the direction around. Does that make sense? So there's a, every change is a starting point. And I tend to think the Holy Spirit's role in that. I'm not sure I'm comfortable dividing the roles, but I'm going to use your language if it's okay. I think the Holy Spirit's role in that often is in our appetites. I think I watched God do a really neat work in my life in regards to appetites. Not only, let's say, with the physical side, but also desiring more exercise and desiring certain things. And as I started one, then God seemed to increase my appetite for that. Does that make sense? And so you do something and God seems to say, that's what it's going to take more of. So you do more of that and God says, that's it. I mean, there's a tandem work there. It was also true when God changed my temper issues 10, 12 years ago. When I knew there was a problem with the rage inside of my heart, there was a place where I said, stop. I, something's got to change. The Holy Spirit began to do a work inside about my appetites. Does that make sense? So that's some initial perspective. I think the Holy Spirit, his role is to say, hey, something's got to change inside. We probably have something to do with the outside of that and adjusting environments. Uh, doing different things with our with our habits and stuff like that. Remember Joseph, when he was tempted, he actually fled the scene in the Old Testament when it was sexual temptation. He had to actually alter his environment physically in order not to 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 succumb to that. So I don't know if that helps, God, but I, I think that's probably what I would say initially. Um, it's okay to pray. That God changes our hearts. The Holy Spirit give us better appetites. I don't mean necessarily just physically, but in a number of things. Or take away, like if you have an addiction, let's say to alcohol or to nicotine or to shopping. It could be a number of things. To gossip. God, please take this away and help replace it with this. I think we ought to pray that way. And then we take physical steps as a person. To make good on those prompting, shall we say, those prayers. Good question. I want to make sure you understand, change is a starting point, but change is progressive. There's no way, when, you, when, when God causes you to repent, and you make a stop. Like, God, I am turning around. You're right. I want to think and act differently. It is progressive, and it takes time. But it does happen one step at a time, and we've got to take the first step. Amen? I mean, it won't ever happen down there if we don't take the first step. So it is progressive, and I think... Being okay with that is a good start, too. Good question. I'm not sure if that was a decent answer, but it's some of my initial perspective. One more question. Back in the back. Luke? To... Uh... It says they showed their urgency and they called urgently to God. We don't exactly put on sackcloth and mope around in the ground these days. So what are some good ways that we could show God that we're urgently seeking his forgiveness? Well, it doesn't say we can't put on sackcloth, <laughs> does it? I mean, sometimes we talk ourselves out of the literal interpretation. Now, I, I grant you, I've never worn sackcloth on purpose. Um, I've worn some scratchy clothes before, you know, as a kid, like, man, mom, why, why are you making me wear this, you know? But I would say that uh, fasting 
would be very legitimate. We know it's done in the New Testament. Um, maybe the principle behind both the sackcloth and the fasting is the willingness to sacrifice, to give up something physical to show your sincerity. And um, that's, why, that's what fasting does. We give up something that most of us consider very valuable, food, to show the Lord, hey, God, this is how serious I am about changing. So maybe ask yourself this, Luke, what could I physically give up? And perhaps it's a temporary sacrifice. I don't think they wore sackcloth forever, nor they fast forever. But there's a time in which we maybe temporarily give up some things physically uh, to show God. And I'm trying to think in our culture what that might be. I don't know that I have an answer to that question, Luke. That's a good question. Uh, fasting is one legitimate option. Um, maybe it would be tied to the area in which you're repenting. Let's say, for instance, you really are repenting of materialism and greed. Maybe when you make that turn, you say, you know what, God, I'm, I'm going to quit trying to buy the latest thing to make sure folks think I'm really in and hot and I have the certain image. I'm just going to give up all of those luxuries for 60 days because, you know what, they don't make me who I am. My sufficiency is in you, Christ. So you know what, God? I'm just not going to worry about trying to impress anybody. I'm going to put aside, you know, the latest electronic gadget or the... I'm not going to drive the really nice truck. I don't know. That sounds crazy, but maybe that's one of the ways we could show God our sincerity by sacrificing something that's maybe related to the area we're repenting. Does that make sense? Just an idea. Good question. Now, those are some really good questions, and you can obviously see by those that I don't have all the answers. But I want to encourage you in your lighthouse, and even here today when we're done, to maybe talk about some of those questions and, and see how they might breed among us a spirit of repentance. By the way, something that God's impressed upon my heart that I'll be blogging about this week is there's really only one letter difference between change and chance. You ever thought about that? And when Jonah got a second chance... God required a change. When the Ninevites got a second chance, God required a change. And if you're sensing today, hey, this is my second chance. This may be my last chance. I want to tell you biblically, change the C to a G. Because second chances require change. And change is all about repentance. Hearing God saying, I am wrong, you're right, stopping and turning around and mentally and physically saying, okay, I need to start the other direction. Now, let me wrap up with a couple of observations quickly. Two aspects about repentance that I think will help us maybe put some, some um, um, walking clothes on this concept. I think there is an aspect to repentance, what I call the sowing of repentance. In other words, a lot of us can be involved at times in sowing the seeds of repentance. Okay? In other words, God could use you to help someone find a U-turn and stop what they're doing, make a turn, and go this way. Let me tell you who I'm talking to right now. Listen very carefully. It starts with a P, and your name is Parent. And too many times, in this culture especially, Moms and dads abdicate their role to sow the seeds of repentance across their home. And we kind of just think, well, they'll grow out of it or one day this will happen. Man, embrace your responsibility to, to lay the groundwork so that your children can, when they hear God calling, can easily stop and turn and chase hard after God. Be a, 
a, a seed sower of repentance. Let me give you three elements in this text that I think did this. And I'll just show them on the screen behind me. They're pretty simple. I think, first of all, people, second of all, truth, and third of all, time. These were all elements that God used to sow the seeds of repentance. Jonah was one of them. He gave God's message, even though it was probably very hard to hear. And he did it over a period of time. Now, I think Jonah probably preached for about a day. I think he started the first day. People heard it. They responded. And then it kind of worked like a ripple effect. I don't think he had to go on for two, day two and day three preaching. I think it just kind of spread like wildfire. I think probably by day three or four, these folks were all in sackcloth and fasting on their knees. And they never even got to the end of the 40 days. Now, maybe... They didn't know what was going to happen until day 40 occurred. We're not sure. But I think they were already in a posture of repentance by day three or four probably. Because Jonah had taken the time to give the truth. There are probably people here, and I mean this in a humble way. There may be really nothing in your life right now that you have to repent of. I mean, you're following the Lord with all your heart. God knows that your, your posture is one of like, God, whatever you say, I'm there. He may want to use you to be a a repentance sower, to walk with someone who really is struggling. And God's going to use you. He wants to use you to share that truth over time as a person. Can I give you two good examples of this just briefly? I'm not going to have you turn there, but write these passages down. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. He was the forerunner of Christ and he came preaching a message of what? Repentance. He was getting people ready for Jesus. All he did was sow the seeds of repentance. That was his role. And then Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he sowed lots of seeds of repentance to those believers in Corinth. In fact, he wrote a letter that hurt them. Read those verses. He says, I see that my letter hurt you, but I don't regret that, he says. He says, because it brought you to a place where you realized you were wrong and you repented. You see, God uses people who have the truth over a period of time to help other people come to repentance. God may want to use some of you that way. And some of you are running from the very people who need the seeds you can sow in their life. There's also another aspect to repentance I want to bring about. I want to talk to you about. And that is the showing of repentance. This is what I refer to as, as the deeds of repentance. There are at least three things in this passage in Jonah that are shown to us that indicate they really meant business about the change that was going on. First of all was their, was their trust. They did not lean on what they had known, but instead they believed God. Then there were tears. Now, we could take that literally and mean that you have to cry every time, or we could just understand that there's an emotional factor to repentance that often can let us know something serious is going on. Nothing wrong with tears. Are you with me? It may not always be tears per se, but there is an emotional factor to true repentance that often we just uh, don't pay attention to, and we should, especially with children. Why don't you love it when your kids run to you and they're just bawling their eyes out because they're so sorry they messed up? Man, what parent can't embrace that response and say, well, Will, there's a second chance, and then you've seen your kids do this. Sure, Dad, I'm sorry, no problem. You're like, I can tell there's not a lot of sincerity behind this lack of emotion. But then there's also the turning factor. Yes, there was trust. There was a different mindset. There was an emotional response. But there was turning. There was physical change. And can I say something to you that I've really had on my mind for several weeks? And I want to say this very clearly. And I want you to hear me with 
humility and openness and meekness. Where there is no change, even a progressive initial change to stop and turn, where there is no change, there is no repentance. So don't keep telling your wife you're sorry if you're not willing to change. Don't keep telling your husband, oh, I didn't mean that, if you're not going to change. Granted, it is progressive. It can be slow and it takes time, but there is a starting place to change. And it is one step at a time. And until there's change, I personally don't think there's repentance. Those are all elements that show repentance. By the way, the same elements are seen in those same two passages. When John the Baptist was preaching repentance, he said these words in 3.8. He said, show the fruits of repentance. I mean, fruit means what? I can see that this apple seed is genuine because I now have an apple in my hand. Are you with me? Paul even said in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, I think it was 7, he said that I can see that the sorrow that you are going through, it ended up in great eagerness and earnestness and you want to do the right thing. In other words, he could see in their actions that they meant what they said. Their sorrow led to certain kinds of actions. Listen, people, repentance can be seen. And it may be that in this room there are people who've been mouthing repentance instead of living it. Can I say to you as your pastor, you're not repentant. You may be sorrow by the, sorry by the world standards, but you're not truly ready to make a U-turn. You're just trying to avoid a crash. You want to maybe take a detour. Repentance is, wow, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I turn, and I'm going to start going your direction. And there's change. Let me give you one last verse that that really sums up the concept of repentance very well. I think John said it best when he said in 1 John 1, 9, and Marty mentioned this earlier. He said, if we confess our sins, then God does what? He's faithful to forgive us. You know what the word confess means? The word confess, I'll teach you a Greek word. It's homo legeo. The word homo means same. Lego in the Greek is to speak. When you confess, you speak the same thing as. And most of our confessions are like this. God, if that was a bad word, forgive me. And if that was a bad act, forgive me. And if that offended so-and-so, what's, what's with the if deal in confession? I mean, when we confess, we say, God, I want to say the same thing about my sin that you do. And that thought was evil. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I want to take every thought captive instead and bring it into obedience to Christ. I turn from that kind of thinking and I want to think like Jesus. Does that make sense? We say the same thing about our sin that God does. That when we don't give to the Lord as He instructs, we're robbing God. That's what Malachi says. That when we look after a woman with an adulterous mindset, it's like committing, with a lustful mindset, it's like committing adultery in our hearts. Are you with me, guys? Are you with me, ladies? That's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, okay, wait a second. To confess means to say the same thing. And when we learn to say the same thing that God does, that's repentance. That's the kind of change that people around us need to see. That's the kind of change that gets God's attention. That's the kind of change God saw in the Ninevites, which prompted him, as we'll see next week, to not bring the judgment that was on the horizon.
Repentance is a powerful thing in the eyes of God. I pray this week we will posture ourselves to call out to heaven, to hear the Lord, to respond to him in humility and say, Lord, I am sorry. You're right, I'm wrong. I want to make a U-turn. And I want to live out what I now know in my head. God, bring me into a lifestyle of daily repentance. With that in mind, let's close in prayer, shall we?